Amen. Okay. Once again, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. Once again, we have familiar verses before us. Um, We have two sections uh, today in this section, the You Have Heard section, um, that we are covering. Two smaller segments. Um, The first one is about oaths and vows. And the second one is very well known. The infamous eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So we'll deal with that as we come to it. Uh, Not a small controversy surrounding that. That is a a passage that has caused huge issues over the years. And we'll explain why as we get there. But let us begin our journey in verse 33. Again, for context, as we see the again in the text, again is reminding us that we have the same context here. Uh, that we have had in the previous little mini-segments. And that context is reiterated with those two important expressions. Firstly, you have heard. And secondly, the reference to the ancients. Both of those expressions, as you recall, are referencing the rabbis. In other words, what is the issue here? What is the controversy? Is it the Mosaic law? No, it's not the Mosaic law. It's the Pharisaic interpretation of that Mosaic law. That's the issue. In other words, for us to understand what's going on, we need to understand what shenanigans the Pharisees were up to and how they were misusing Mosaic law for us to fully understand what Jesus is saying. So the verse from the Bible that Jesus makes reference to here, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. That is a quotation from uh, Exodus. Exodus, um, and we have it, you'll have it if you have footnotes and references. Sorry, in Deuteronomy, I've got my notes wrong here. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. And the point here in, in Deuteronomy is fairly, it's a fairly simple one. It's not a complex issue here at all. It's simply this. If you're going to make a vow, don't make a false one. There you go. That's the point. Pretty darn simple. It's not complicated, it's not tricky, but what it says is you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Now, one of the bizarre things about the legacy translation is whenever we have the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, it doesn't translate it the Lord like most English versions, it literally says Yahweh, which I think is wonderful. But then we have this bizarre scenario when it quotes from the Old Testament and it keeps the Lord rather than making that Yahweh as well. I I have no understanding of why. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, But um, I guess the argument is it's translating the Greek and the Greek says literally, Hokurios, the Lord. I mean, it's translating what the Greek says. So I guess that's why. But you need to understand that this is from Deuteronomy and therefore it's, it's talking about um, when you fulfill your vows, you do so to Yahweh. 
Now, that's important and significant. And again, we're not turning to Deuteronomy. We're not really focusing on Deuteronomy here. What we're focusing on is what the Pharisees were doing. But just briefly, the idea here is, is that if you don't keep your vows, that you are, you are bringing shame to the name of Yahweh, whose people you are. So the idea is you don't make a vow falsely, but rather you fulfill your vows to Yahweh. In other words, hey, if I promise X to you, whomever you are my neighbor, then if I don't keep that, I've not just violated you, I've violated Yahweh because in making a vow, I should be, I should be mindful to that vow as I would were I making the vow to Yahweh himself. Now that's, that's significant and important. And I think it's partly because they are Yahweh's community and his covenant people. But also I think it's because we and they are covenant people. Because we worship a covenant God. God makes vows, which he calls covenants, which are binding with blood. You don't, you don't sign a covenant, you cut a covenant. So God says, I will do this, and he's going to do it. Period. That's it, he's going to do it. Why? Because he's God. And when he says, I will do this, it has more weight than anything else that could, that could be said. Because not only is he giving you his intention, but he's speaking as one with infinite wisdom and infinite power. So he is able to bring about what he promises to do. And so the covenants of God are unique in that he's able to fulfill them. So we are a covenant people, as people of the new covenant. And the Old Testament, they were, they were covenant people under the old covenant. And so because they're covenant people, there was something inherently important. If I say to you, hey, listen, I promised um, that tomorrow I'll pop round and I'll come and help you with, with whatever it is that you're doing then there is a certain degree of importance because they've given you my word. But what they had in their culture was this concept of making an oath. It wasn't the equivalent of us just saying, yeah, look, I'll, I'll pop round tomorrow, I promise. But rather what they're doing is they're saying, look, I will do this and I am swearing an oath. And there's something formal and something categorical about it. And for these people... In their law, there was a status in making an oath. And we do have an equivalent today. And that's a contract in law. And we're kind of obliged to keep that. But often with our legal contracts, we become a lot like the Pharisees, as we shall see. So, when we have that as our background... There we are, we see that there's a law. If you're making a, a vow, it shouldn't be a false one because doing so compromises 
your, co- your connection to and your commitment to Yahweh. What did the Pharisees do with that law? They made an entire network of laws. They made an entire network of rules that were completely unthought of by Moses that this law has no intention of making. And they created just this whole thing. I've spent too much time reading Pharisaic laws. I I really, this section in preparation is really troublesome because I don't want to read the Pharisees' rules. But I, I do so for you. So you don't have to. I go in there and I, and I look at some of this stuff so you can just get an idea of why you wouldn't want to read it. They separate oaths and vows. And they have a third type as well. And they all have different names. One of them is Korban. And I mention that because that's going to become relevant as Jesus deals with the Pharisees in a few chapters time. But it's as if making a vow and making an oath were the same thing. But there were types of oaths and vows that were different things. If you're confused, don't worry, I am as well. Then... Then there were four various circumstances on which these various vows could be annulled. So there were various ways of making a vow and then getting out of your vow. Some of those annulments were considered to be, you know, we would consider them reasonable. If somebody made you make a vow under duress, we have allowances for that in our modern law. If you made a vow in error, hmm, it's kind of broad, you know. I made a vow, but I really didn't mean to. Oh, really? Yeah, it doesn't count. (laughs) All right. Um, You make a vow in exaggeration. Well, yeah, I was saying I would do it, but I didn't really mean it, (laughs) you know. And I guess we have vows like that. How many of you in the playground as a child said to your school buddies, swear on my mother's life? You know? And nobody, none of your school friends in grade five expected, ah, you didn't come through on that. I'll be popping around to see your mother with a sharp knife tomorrow. No one expects that. So they're pleading exaggeration. And also there was a category of vows of urging. I, I don't even know at this point. That, you know, the, perhaps the idea that you were kind of like, you were urging someone to do something, but you used a vow to do it. You know, well, there's a lot of rules and regulations. Oh, I haven't even begun with the rules and regulations. The four forms of annulment were there because there was this complex system of rules regarding annulments. To annul a vow was a very serious thing and it was only permitted by certain people. The leaders, the religious leaders of the day, they were the only ones that could annul. And if they were to falsely annul, annul where there wasn't a rule for annulment, then that would be considered a serious crime by them. So they have to make sure that you've met the rules of annulment, otherwise they're breaking rules of annulments by annulling a vow that's not annullable. But the really complicated bit is what you made your vow on. And there are all sorts of ways that you could make a vow. Rather than giving you Pharisaic examples which would bore you as much as me, 
I'll just point you to scripture. Uh, Jadine read for us this morning from Matthew 23. Don't lose Matthew 5, keep your finger there, but you may want to just flick ahead. And in that section, we have the famous woes to the Pharisees. And I cannot wait to get there. It's one of my favorite passages. He just, it, it is the, it is the crescendo, the culmination of all the conflict with the Pharisees where Jesus just spits blood at them. It's just, it's magnificent. Every time that you, you think, uh, you know, you're posting some sort of vitriolic post on social media. You, th- you probably think you're sounding as clever as this. The reality is, of course, you never are. But, but this is, this is magnificent. He just, he just goes to town on them. You've got to remember, they are the most important people in Jewish society in their day. And he doesn't just call them a hypocrite once, he calls them a hypocrite every single time. He doesn't just say woe in a way of saying, I don't like you. Woe is judgment from God. And he specifically says in multiple woes that they are not going to heaven. And he specifically says that they're going to hell. They have no place in the kingdom and they're going to hell. So it's just a glorious passage generally. But in the midst of this, there is that one section, and I'm picking up here from verse 16. In fact, it's the longest of the woes in it. Woe to you, blind guides. I love that expression. You're showing everybody around, and you're blind, and you can't see. So it's a, it's a brilliant analogy. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the sanctuary, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the sanctuary is obligated. Right. This is the, a classic example, and by the way, it's one of many, where here you are, I, I, I make an oath, and I swear to you by the sanctuary. The sanctuary is the holy place of the temple. I swear to you by the temple. And I swear to you by that, and, and for some reason you can just annul that. That's no biggie. But if you were to say, I swear on the gold that is in that sanctuary, oh boy, you're in trouble if you break that vow. Does that seem ridiculous to you? Completely. Absolutely ridiculous. How do such rules happen? Nobody in our time needs to ask that question. Don't go, when you're queuing at the check-in desk at the airport, keep six feet apart while you wear a mask, and now get on the plane and you're all sitting squashed up in these little seats that give you no legroom, while you were six feet apart while in the line to get on the plane. I mean, you know, you've got to keep six feet apart and you've got to wear a mask, you know, in this store, but not in that store. Oh, and the church is closed, but you can go and buy liquor. You, you, you want to see stupid rules? We, the Pharisees had nothing on LA County Health 2020 to 2022. We said, Pharisees, huh? King of making up useless rules, useless rules? Hold my beer. I got this. Let me, let me go and do this. Oh, we can make up some crazy rules right here, right now. You know? And we did. We lived in utter stupidity 
where there was a rule that by itself could be argued and another rule that by itself could be argued and then we just threw them all into a big swirling pit and shook them around a bit and just saw wherever they fell, yeah, let's just do that. So we understand how this kind of nonsense happens. We of all people. You see, how do you end up with gold in the sanctuary, with the sanctuary being a holy place, being of value in a vow, but the sanctuary itself not? Well, I suspect it's to do with the fact that they wouldn't swear on the name. It goes back to the, the quote we see in Deuteronomy. And the vow being unto Yahweh, but they wouldn't swear on Yahweh because they couldn't, because they wouldn't use the name Yahweh. So they would swear on the name of God, but they would use other names like El Shaddai and, you know, and, and uh, substitute words for God that didn't actually use his name. And they were really precious and important. And, and the temple had such a holy place, that really it was like the temple could then be seen as too holy to swear on, but you can swear on the gold in the temple, which is kind of implying the temple. So now you're not swearing on the temple, you're only swearing on the gold, that becomes important. You say, but yeah, they are swearing on the temple. Yeah, but you wouldn't swear on the temple, so that's clearly an exaggeration, so now that allows for annulment. I mean, the whole thing's just a mess. And what Jesus seems to enjoy doing here in this extended section is he just exposes their stupidity. He's basically saying it's more important the goal in the sanctuary than the the sanctuary which is what makes the goal. The goal's not holy unless it's in the sanctuary. It's the sanctuary that's holy, not the goal. That makes no sense. And whoever swears, verse 18, by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he's obligated. So the altar's not important, but the offering is. But the offering is maybe, like I say, a food offering. The food outside of that context is is unimportant, but it becomes important because of the altar. But swearing on the altar doesn't matter, but swearing on the offering does matter. It makes no sense. And then so on and so forth. And what he is doing is he's exposing in the entirety of this section the the stupidity of the system. Now, just very brief excursion. I just want to make an application at this point. Because, of course, there's there's less application in these passages than initially may seem. Because we're dealing with Jesus exegeting Mosaic law and confronting Pharisaic interpretations. But I will give you this for application. When you see stupid rules, it's thoroughly biblical to simply say, look, these rules are stupid. 100%. 100%. You get to stand up and say, now that rule's stupid. And there's another separate issue, which, the, which is the authority of those who make the rules, but we might come to that a little bit later on. But, and I know a good book about that as well. But, but aside from that, I think there is this, this point that sometimes things are just absolutely stupid. You know, and I like seeing stupidity exposed. 
We live in a time right now where people really seriously will, will try and make you lose your job and socially ostracize you for calling a man he and a woman she. That is how collectively stupid our society has become. Just point out the stupidity. Stand up to it. Otherwise we as a society become stupid. Stand up and say that makes no, that makes no sense. I saw a clip where somebody who was a medical doctor who was incredibly woke, was trying to say, hey, well, you know, this person, you know, though they were born biologically a male, now they're a female, and we just have to recognize that and what have you. Okay, says the interviewer. So if this person that you're saying is a woman, but was biologically born a man, if this person comes to you and says that they think they have menstrual cramps, because they have pain in their abdomen, are you going to consider that a potential thing that you might treat for? And they said, oh, well, no, obviously not. See your stupidity. Clear for everyone to see. And I think we're entering an age where people are living more and more like the Pharisees. We're entering an age where people are... And and this is the connection here. This is the parallel. The Pharisees imposed... Ridiculous, unjustified, unnecessary rules that made no sense and people went along with it because they were scared of them. And they were scared of the impact. And you read through the gospel accounts, you see it again and again and again. John 9, the man who was born blind, who was healed... And now the parents are brought before the Pharisees. These are parents whose most wonderful dream that they could have ever dreamt has come true. They had a kid who was blind from birth and a miracle has been done that they didn't believe could ever happen because the Pharisees had taught them that only one person, one person in human history would ever be able to heal somebody who was born blind. And that was the Messiah. Pharisees said that in their own writings. And Jesus now came and did it. And their son can now see. And they are so happy. And even then, in the midst of their joy, they stand before the Pharisees and they try not to tell the Pharisees what is plainly true. Jesus is the Messiah. He healed my son who was born blind. They couldn't even do that because they were scared that the Pharisees would throw them out of the synagogue. They were scared of the societal implications. That even then, even after Jesus had healed their son, they still still felt more allegiance to the Pharisees than to Jesus. If you fear those people who talk nonsense and used to... I'm not going to use the word submit because you can only submit to legitimate authority. You choose to, to bow to their stupidity and you play their stupid games because you fear man, then perhaps you don't fear God enough. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Let your male be male, let your female be female. Don't play stupid games because you fear those who make the rules. 
excursus complete. So when we then look at Matthew 5 again, Jesus says to them in response. So we now understand what Deuteronomy was saying. We now understand what the Pharisees were doing, creating this entire network of rules and regulations. This vow is more important than that vow. This can be annulled. That can't be annulled. This is serious. This isn't serious. So on and so forth. And Jesus simply says in response to their system this. But I say to you, here's the contrast, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is by the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the king. Now, let's deal with these first. The connection between these is if you swear on heaven, then logically, getting rid of all the stupidity, you're swearing by God because God is the one who is in heaven. It's where his throne is. If you swear by earth, it makes no sense because earth is his footstool, so you're still swearing by God. And if you swear by Jerusalem, why is Jerusalem special? Because it's God's city and therefore you're swearing by God. In other words, in all of these things, you're swearing by God. So why not just say it? The next couple, he said, or the next one rather, he says, nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Even swearing on your own self is pointless because it doesn't distinguish from God. Because what happens to your head, what happens to your life, or to take that playground analogy again, if you swear on your mother's life, who controls your mother's life? Who decides whether your mother lives or dies? Who decides when a person dies? Who decides how a person dies? Is it not our sovereign God? In other words, whatever you swear on, you're not isolating yourself from Yahweh, which in the midst of thousands of rules for oaths and vows, is the one thing they did isolate themselves from. From swearing on the name of Yahweh. Because they recognized how important it was. And what Jesus is saying is whenever you make an oath, you're swearing on the name of Yahweh. That's the point of Deuteronomy. Don't make a false vow, because if you break your vow, it looks bad on Yahweh. You can't disconnect your vow from Yahweh. You can't try and say, well, my vow's really, really important, gold in the temple, but it's not Yahweh important. You don't get to play these games. And what's fascinating is that one particular commentary made the point that rather than Jesus saying, don't make an oath at all, either by heaven, Jesus isn't saying, don't make oaths swearing on these various things, because the Pharisaic understanding saw the entire network of rules as one united whole. And that nobody at this time would have understood what Jesus says in any other way than Jesus simply saying, don't make vows. Don't make vows. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Well, what do we do then, Jesus? Thank you for asking. 
This is what you do. Yes, yes. No, no. I love that. Most versions I, I, I have in my head from Bible memory from years ago. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, right? But this is a much more literal rendering and it's brilliant. Let your statement be. Literally, let your word be. And that's important. I don't like the word statement here. I'll, I'll be honest about that. Because I think that the word is a, you know, you're, I get you're making a statement and, and, and the, the, the Greek word can be used to mean statement. So it's perfectly fine. But it's replicating the oath and vow. When you make a vow, you're giving your word. You're saying something, right? And it's replicating that. And it's like, He's essentially saying, this is your oath. This is, this is your substitute for an oath. This is your equivalent. This is what your word is. This is your word. Yes, yes. No, no. <laughs> and I love it. The idea is, are you going to do this? And what they're used to is this. They're used to, of course I do it. I swear on the heavens and the earth. I swear on the sanctuary and the gold in the sanctuary and all of this kind of stuff. Are, are you doing this? Yes. I, I'm sorry. What did you, yes. It's just that, that reiteration of yes. You, you, you're not going to let me down here. No. I kind of was, I was waiting for something else. No. Oh, okay. That's it. That's it. And the the importance of what he's stating, I think, can't be lost to us. Now, this is where we have to go. Okay, our, our, our context we dealt with. What's the context? Context is Pharisaic misinterpretation of Mosaic law. What is Jesus doing in response? He is correctly exegeting the righteousness behind the command. And in that Deuteronomy passage, the righteousness of that law is, don't go around making vows and then not keeping them. The Jews understood that. You find tons of passages in the Old Testament where people made really stupid, rash vows and then were obliged to keep them. Jepheth, anybody. But I don't want to get distracted by those passages, but suffice to say they understood the importance of it. And, and, and Deuteronomy is why that was so important to them. Because they've been told no false vows. And Deuteronomy is making the connection between what you say and your status as God's people means that when you lie, it looks bad on God. Now, we're not under Mosaic law. We're not. We are not under Deuteronomy. We're not under any of the specifics. Specifics, rather. But let me say this. When you make a vow and it doesn't come to pass, you look bad. But also God looks bad. Because you're God's people. That is true. That is always true. I've often wondered, you know, if I ever got taken to court as a witness or some sort of trial and I had to give a testimony. And I don't know how things work, whether it's the same over here. But I know in England they would, they would bring out the Bible. Put your right hand in the Bible, put your left hand in the air. Repeat after me. I swear to tell the whole truth. Nothing but the truth. So help me God. Right? What are we doing there? We're swearing on a Bible. Like somehow that's now more important. Guys, for us as Christians, that has less relevance even than for a non-Christian. Because we're a Christian, we don't need a prop. 
And I've always thought to myself, if I was in that situation, I'd say, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I can't swear on a Bible because I'm a Christian. It's like, well, isn't that, isn't that more appropriate for you? No, I'm a Christian. So I'm a yes, yes, no, no kind of guy. Every time I say, this happened, Your Honor, on said day, the, the, the defendant said this to me, Your Honor, on said day, then my word is my bond. That when I speak, if I were to lie, then my testimony as a Christian is damaged and God is shamed. Because the God whom I represent is a God who is truth. Remember the words of Jesus? I am the way, the truth. And the life. Jesus is truth. God is truth. God doesn't lie. And so we need to represent. Now I understand. I fully understand. I understand that there are plenty of times in the Bible where people told lies and are seemingly commended for it. Rahab in the battle of uh, Jericho whether it's the midwives of Egypt at the time of Moses being saved. And I, and I think that there is a broader conversation to be had here. But at the very least, though we might come to different conclusions on this, we might come to different conclusions on what we tell the authorities when they come knocking on our door. Do you have Jews hidden in here, World War II? I think it's godly to say no when you have 20 Jews hidden under your floorboards. But we can disagree on maybe some of the specifics regarding that. But I think we can agree on this. When you go to court and you speak, when you say a statement and you say, this is what happened, you don't get to get away with lying to protect your back to protect your reputation, to get yourself out of trouble you've caused yourself, to try and control circumstances, to try and manipulate situations. What you do is you bow before a sovereign God and you honour him by speaking truth. Broadly speaking, we cannot agree on that, surely. That's what Jesus is saying. And I think that the pharisaical system is something that exists today. How many lawyers make a living out of the fact that somebody wants to get out of a contract, right? There are lawyers that will give you prenups, and there's other lawyers that will get you out of prenups. <laughs> it's just like, there's an entire industry where your word cannot mean what you're saying it will mean. And I think that we, we need to be distinctive as Christians in that kind of world. If you sign a contract, you stick with it. If you say you're going to do something, you do it. I don't like the idea of Christians having prenups. I'm not going to go completely out on a limb and say it's always a sin. But you're standing in front of God and saying, for better or for worse, till death do us part. Why have a contract just in case you, you break that vow? We're back to the whole argument of Jesus. What? The sanctuary is not important, but the gold in the sanctuary is? That makes no sense. Oh, what? Honouring the prenups important, but honouring your vow to God to, 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 that this marriage will be, even in the worst of scenarios, till death do you part, that we won't honour? 
You're getting things jumbled up here, pal. Think that this still has many important things to say to us. I think the last thing he says in verse 37 is incredibly interesting. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of the evil one. Some versions may say is evil, but it's not what the text says. It specifically says the evil. It's talking specifically of Satan. It's talking specifically of the devil. Jesus throughout this section has presented inflammatory statements. He basically has said, look, if you kill someone, then you go before a court of law. But if you say to someone when they cut you up in traffic, ugh, you idiot, that's worthy of help. He's, he's deliberately showing us that the issue here is not how you're perceived by your peers and those around you, how you're perceived by the Pharisees. The issue is your righteousness before God. And the law is designed, those of us who've been doing Romans understand this, the law is designed to be able to impute your sin. The law says do not do this, you do this, okay now you know you're a lawbreaker and a sinner. But But because the law does that, it points you to God. It exposes your lack of righteousness that you might cry out to the only one who is righteous. And the Pharisees were avoiding all of that. And I think what Jesus is doing is in that vein, in that he's showing the severity of not adhering to the righteousness underneath the law of oaths and vows. But it makes a good point to us as well. I don't think there's anything exaggerated here. If you do call someone an idiot, you are going to go to hell if that was your only sin. Because we can only avoid hell if we're perfect. As our Father in Heaven is perfect. Which is why we rely on salvation by faith and not by works so that no one can boast. So he's not exaggerating. But what he's saying is, any system that takes away... From you just having to stand by your darn word and do what you said you would do and be who you claim to be and just speak honestly. Any system, no matter how contrived it is, is a system that comes from the devil. Most religion comes from the devil. Because it's a system of rules and regulations that is all designed to do one thing, and that is avoid the truth of Scripture. And often simply to avoid the reality of our sinful state. The Pharisees thought they were the most righteous people in society. And Jesus is showing us how unrighteous they were. How could they be so blind? Because they had a religious system in place that declared righteousness while avoiding, deliberately avoiding the righteousness of the law demanded. It's a system straight from the devil. Now we come to verse 38, and here is this classic verse. You heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Exodus 21, 24. Sorry, that's why I got Exodus from previously. Exodus is where we find this classic verse. And again, we don't need to turn there because he's not looking at Exodus per se, but rather he's understanding the, what the Pharisees taught about this. So we're kind of in our flow now. We know what we're doing with these texts. 
What did the text mean? What were the Pharisees doing with it? How did they manipulate it? Why were they using it to their advantage in a way that actually violated it? Now, I want you, before we do this, just to take one minute to understand something here. Okay? I don't know many churches you would go to that would teach through the Sermon on the Mount, even ones that are nominally dispensational like we are, that would take the Bible at face value, that will go through and really emphasize, look, this is Pharisaic law, he's interpreting Pharisaic law, he's critiquing Pharisaic law, in doing so he's exegeting Mosaic law, this is being preached to people who are under Mosaic law. I read an entire small book in advance of this whole Sermon on the Mount section, where a guy who is highly respected in our circles was arguing that these are commandments of the new covenant, not of the old covenant. And there are many in our circles that hold that view. And I kind of argued this vehemently. I've made the point every week. I've shown you the context. And I want you to just take a minute to see why it's so important. If you think that this is just Jesus speaking to Christians, broadly speaking, you don't break down the specifics. What do you have here? You have Jesus saying, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is wrong. Basically, first of all, means the Mosaic law is wrong, because that's quoting from Mosaic law. And then you have what some people have dubbed the abuser's charter. Don't resist evil people, just let them abuse you. If somebody's stealing your belongings, give them the rest of your belongings. If you're an abused wife in a marriage and your husband's hitting you, let him hit you more. That's what it says, isn't it? I mean, that's just what it says. This is the importance of context, folks. This is why we make the emphases that we make. This is why we take the time that we take. Because we have to understand what's going on, to understand what's being said, to understand how that applied to them, to then be able to take a step back and say, old covenant people under Mosaic law, that's what it meant to them, that's how it applied to them. What can we learn from it, church? You've got to take those steps. You have to. Otherwise, you get well-meaning people who want to gouge their eyes out with screwdrivers. We get well-meaning people who tell wives to stay with abusive husbands. We get all of that situation. Now, I'm not, you guys know, I have really strict views on divorce. Really strict views, more so than in most of our circles. But if somebody was being beaten up by their husband, I'd have police involved in five seconds flat, and I'd make sure that person had a nice warm bed and somewhere to stay with loving people that night. And if that man was a member of this church, there would be church discipline that would be incredibly serious. And we would work with love towards that person until God had so completely changed their character that we felt completely comfortable letting that person return to the marriage bed. We take this stuff seriously. But I know, and I've heard, and you can pick up books that will argue for the abuse to continue because of these verses. And at face value, that's what they do. Context is so important. And we're going to see that. Okay, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What is that doing in the context of Exodus? Now, I don't want to go there. I don't want to spend, I haven't got that time to do that. But, but what I want us to understand is this. What was the Mosaic law for? 
Was it how believers govern their lives? In other words, look, we as Christians, we read the Bible, we're believers. God, tell us how we live. God says, I don't want you to commit adultery. Okay, we mustn't commit adultery. And we now know that's the rule. We don't do that. And here's why and, and what have you. This is how you live. And why do we live by those rules? Because we're Christians. Is that what Mosaic law was? Mm, kind of, but not really. It just, it's just, it can't be categorized that way. Mosaic law was how Israel had to live as a nation, whether they were individually saved or not. They were covenant people as Jews who were bound to God, whether they believed or not. Gentiles could come into that community and they were bound to Mosaic law, even though they weren't Jews. That law governed how government ran. It governed how officials ran things. It was the equivalent, it included the equivalent of our taxation system. But it also included how church was governed. That all of these things, whether it's the practice of worship and the what we call the um, uh, the sacrificial cult, which is not cult in the sense that you know Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, but cult in the sense of you know there was this rigmarole and process of sacrificing animals, how that was done, how the Levites were looked after, what the role of the priests were, all covered by Mosaic law. What happens if you get into a business dispute with your neighbour? Mosaic law. How is government structured? Mosaic law. How do I live as an individual seeking to do what's right before God? Mosaic law. It covered everything. So why is part of Mosaic law have a command that says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Because if somebody plucks your eye out, every ounce of your body wants both of their eyes plucked out. And if you want to see what that kind of law-making looks like when it's allowed to run rampant, just go and have a look at Sharia law. Steal a loaf of bread, there goes your hand. You're not going to be stealing with that hand anymore. Whereas under Mosaic law, there were limitations. And they varied from thing to thing. If harm was done to you, then no harm could be done back beyond what was done. And it wasn't done by you per se, it was done judicially. This is a judicial thing. This is how the courts were run. But if somebody stole something of yours, if someone stole one of your sheep, they actually had to give two sheeps back. So that's a double eye. So that didn't, this verse didn't apply. Because it didn't apply to personal belongings, it applied to harm done to the person. And what it was doing is it was saying, it was the equivalent of our modern, in modern society, of us having sentencing laws. Right? It was saying, if somebody kills you, then the worst that could happen to them is that they can be killed. You say, well, duh, you can't do it. Oh yes, you can. You can kill their entire family. You can blot out the name. You blot out the memory. That was unusual in those days. God does that on occasion. You have the rebellion against Moses and his leadership in the book of Numbers. And God does, just, does not just take out those who rose up in rebellion. 
he takes away all of their ancestors and all of their family lines as well, with one exception, which is the sons of Korah. And they, for generations afterwards, made rather nice psalms, because their focus became on the mercy of God in the midst of darkness and trials and judgment. And they have wonderful things in their psalms to say about being rescued from the edge of Sheol. You see, that could happen. So there's your life and there's, and there's a life taken to stop it going beyond that. There are limitations. We in our society have gone so far from this that it's, we have an equivalent in our society which is not an eye for an eye, but a small speck for an eye. Oh, someone's plucked your eye out? Let's go put a little speck in their eye. That'll teach them. And that's why as Christians we should be furious about the lenience in many laws today. We should be furious about people like Gascon in LA who is letting people who are accused of violent crimes such as rape out on the streets early where they're committing those crimes again. We should be furious because we as Christians should have a sense of justice. And I say all of this to emphasize one point and one point very clearly. That an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is not bad. That is not a bad law. It's justice. We live in such a wet, wimpy, pathetic society that we think that true justice is a bad thing. And we as Christians have allowed for the expression an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth to become shorthand of something bad, something wrong, something evil, something wicked. This is a law that found itself in the context of how society was governed and it was a godly law that was holy and just and given by a God who was holy and just. And if we overpunish crime by being too severe, that is ungodly. And if we underpunish crime by being too lenient, that is also ungodly. There is nothing wicked about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It was a godly law. And it is still a godly principle. Broadly speaking. So how did the Pharisees use it? What did they do with that law that made it so bad? They took a law that was used. They took a law that was used for judicial purposes. And they implied it personally. You took my eye out. I'm getting yours. The entire system of the Mosaic law meant that couldn't happen. Now, I am not going to finish this section today. And by the way, that wasn't just a running out of time. That is by design. Because this bleeds into the key principle that Jesus is going to wrap all of this up with, which is the concept of loving your neighbor. Because what the Pharisees were constantly doing from the beginning of this section until the end of this section, what they were doing is they were using the law as a way to... Look out for themselves and not love their neighbour. That's what they were doing 
for its entirety. And as Jesus says, you can sum up the law with love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbour as yourself. Mosaic law had this push where it was there governing how we were dealing with God but also governing with how society should function. And the Pharisees used their high and mighty religious thinking to avoid their responsibilities to the neighbours and to the people in their society and community around them. And this is no exception. What they did is they took the law that was how law functions, how law governs, how judicial law exists, and they took that and they said, we get to do that. Now, I don't think there's any Pharisee who if somebody came and literally plucked their eye out, would have said, right, I'm plucking yours out. But there were Pharisees who, if you were to assault them, would have you beaten up. There are Pharisees that if you stole from them, they'd have things stolen from you. They took the law into their own hands. In book of Romans chapter 12, it says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That is a quotation from Deuteronomy 32 and verse 35. In other words, the principle that we see in the church today is also a principle that was there under Mosaic law. And the principle is this. You don't get to take vengeance. If you have somebody, and I'm going to make this very real and very possible and very painful. If somebody comes to you or comes and takes your children... And they harm your children. They commit some crime that's so vicious and atrocious that no right-thinking person would, would allow for it. Some Christians think that some sort of vigilantism is acceptable in such, such situations. I have seen online somebody catching... The story of somebody catching a criminal in the act of abusing their child. And they physically killed that person. And everybody on social media cheers and claps. Christians, we have no, we have no validity to do that. Vengeance is not ours. It's not ours. And you, some of you may have read a little book called Caesar in the Church, where the author argues when you go in Romans 12 and you see that vengeance is not ours, that God is the one who has vengeance, and when evil is done to us, we don't get to do evil back. We, we get to do good back to those who do evil to us, right? But then we see in Romans 13, in the next chapter, the very next sentences, that the very purpose of government is to execute the vengeance that belongs to God. 
God gets to execute vengeance, not us. But God, that isn't to say that God is saying, you just wait till they get to me when they die. You wait till they get to hell. We'll make them pay. No, no, no. God says, this is how I will do vengeance now. I will have a system of government. And the government will punish the evil in society. That's what it will do. So imagine, imagine that you have your child harmed, that that person, because you recognize that God has vengeance, don't, you don't get to do anything, so you report to the police, maybe you stop the person escaping rather than cause them physical harm, and you leave it for the courts to deal with it and decide. And either they get off on some terrible, you know, uh, technicality, or maybe they get imprisoned, but some, some terrible, you know, person or authority, like a Gascon type figure, lets them out after a year. That's horrifically unjust. Now do you have any validity for you to have vigilante justice? Justice hasn't been served. The government hasn't done its job. No, you don't. Because Peter tells us clearly, you submit to government even when government is wicked and evil and wrong. And the government's job is to punish evil. It's not your job. Your only recourse is to government. And take that recourse. Get that person thrown out. Sue them. Go through the courts. Take it to appeal. Do whatever you can in that realm. But you don't get to do anything. You've got to separate the realms. Do you understand that? And you say, well, hold on a second, Anthony. Weren't you the person who publicly said that when the, when the government said you must wear a mask to go in this store, that you went in the stores without masks? And when people said, could you put a mask on, you said no. How do you justify such inconsistency? Because God commands us to submit to government. Submission is a word that recognizes legitimate authority. And government has legitimate authority to punish evil. So when a crime is done, it is the government's job to punish that crime. But it's not the government's job to look after my health. It's not the government's job to be my nanny. It's not the government's job to tell me what to put on my face. It's not my gov- the government's job to decide what is good and evil. Because God is the one who decides what is good and evil. And it's their job to punish the evil as defined by God that happens in society around us. Now you see, I may not have finished this section, but that's a mighty good place to end a sermon, is it not? Because the point I want you to go home with is this. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is a holy and godly command that God gave to his people in love and without any mistake. Because it is placing limitations judicially so that people wouldn't be over-sentenced, to use our modern terminology, nor under-sentenced. Because justice is a good thing and God has ordained that government should do its job, which is to punish evil. However, we are not government unless we have been elected to such a position. And therefore, vengeance is not ours. And therefore, we don't get to punish other people. 
And therefore, when someone treats us badly, we don't get to say, well, the God I believe in is a God of justice, so I'll be doing X, Y, and Z to them. X, Y, and Z for you Americans who can't translate. But I'm going to be doing this back to them because they've done this to me, and now that's fine in God's eyes because look at the Bible. God is a God of justice. No, 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 no. There is place and time and realm. If somebody does you harm, if someone is being beaten up and abused, there is no justification to beat up and abuse the person back. No justification at all. But there is justification for getting authorities involved who were supposed to have authority to punish exactly that kind of evil. Now do you see the distinction? And what the Pharisees were doing is the Pharisees were saying, I believe in a God of justice, Yahweh has justice, and they were using it as a way to bypass the courts, and bypass sometimes the flaws of the courts, and to bypass often, in their system, the fact that they were under the Roman rule, and that the Romans, we want Jesus crucified! Well you can't unless I let you. Unless we do it for you, it can't happen. And they were bypassing things and applying a judicial law to individual relationships. So that is how Mosaic law should be understood. But we as Christians today, we know from Romans 12 we're under the same obligation. Vengeance is not yours. You don't get to pay people back. Does that mean there is an abuser's charter? Well, we'll look at that more in detail next time. But I can safely say now, no. There is a place to report. There is a place to go. And for all of its failings, we as Christians are obliged to go to government and to urge government to do what God has called government to do. And we'll talk more about that next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, for the importance of these passages before us. Father, may we be people who want to pursue your righteousness before we worry about harm to ourselves. May we be people who want to do what's right, whatever the cost. May we never be people who twist religious statements to avoid our own sin. To avoid being forced to repent of our sin. To, to avoid being confronted with our sin. Just like the Pharisees did. But may we allow your laws to expose our sin. That we might repent. That we might repent to you. We might repent to those we've harmed. That there may no, be no sin dwelling amongst us. May this church, may this congregation take the issue of sin seriously. May we not allow sin to prosper in our midst. May there be love amongst these brothers and sisters. May there be repentance amongst these brothers and sisters where necessary. May there be no grudges amongst brothers and sisters. May we always seek to love one another as we love you.
Amen.